I invite you to turn with me this morning to two passages in the Gospels, first from Luke 1 and then also from Matthew 1. Luke 1 will begin at verse 26 and also Matthew 1. We're looking at a series I've been calling uh, In the Shadow of Herod, asking the question about the cultural context, the, the, the political and, and uh, other types of cultural context that was happening in Jesus' day and how that impacted the people uh, that were part of this first Christmas story. We, we actually backed up from the land of Palestine in the first week and and looked at how Luke sets the Christmas story uh, under the dominance of the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus. That's the first character that shows up in Luke's Christmas story. And that Caesar Augustus, uh, that Jesus becomes a contrast to Caesar Augustus. As Caesar Augustus has called himself Lord and God and uh, people said about him he was the savior of the whole world and would bring peace on earth. And through the through the different characters in the Christmas story, Luke says, no, the real Lord and God, the real uh, Savior of the world, the one who brings peace on earth is this baby that's born in Bethlehem. And then we started last week by looking, narrowing our focus more in the land of Israel. The Romans called it Palestine. And there we noted that the dominant figure was Herod the Great. And that Herod the Great was kind of in the Christmas story, if you will, the elephant in the room that no one wanted to talk about, but his presence was there. And so we looked at how Matthew serves up Herod as a contrast to Jesus, who is the real king of the Jews. And now I want to start looking at the other Christmas uh, characters. Uh, Mary and Joseph this morning, angels and shepherds on Christmas Day, and then next Sunday we'll look at the Magi and all how they dealt with this elephant in the room. King Herod, this dominant person in the land of Israel. So we, I'm just going to look at a couple of different passages that talk about uh, the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary and then to Joseph. So we start in Luke 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, and what we're talking about there is the sixth month of, of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy, which is the previous story. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. 
But this was kind of a busy angel, and if you turn back with me to Matthew 1, a little later in the story, after word of Mary's pregnancy got out, Joseph faces a dilemma, and he is also visited by an angel. Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. As we come to God's word, would you first come with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you inspired these words to be recorded by Luke and Matthew, so that their audiences, and we today might know this story. We pray that you would now take these words and inspire them to us, to help us know how you want us to live in accordance with what Jesus has done in his coming and throughout his life. We pray this in his name. Amen. So we've been looking at Jesus' birth from kind of the cultural context What did it mean for him to be born at this particular time, with these particular conditions, these people in in, uh, control? And we found that the person who looms most powerfully and menacingly over the story is King Herod. Now, Herod is often reduced in our Christmas celebrations to a rather minor character. But to the people of his day... And the characters in the first Christmas story, everything happened under his immense shadow. He dominated Judea. He terrified people, as we saw last week, with his paranoid homicidal tendencies. How about Mary and Joseph? Well, in Nazareth, which is the picture on your screen, in Nazareth, Herod probably seemed light years away. There was a little town in Galilee, far distance from where Herod would have been in Jerusalem for most of the time. Very small, insignificant, peaceful. Nazareth was named by its, its residents, who according to history were from the family of Jesse and King David. And, he was named, and it was named after a prophecy about Jesse, in particular about a descendant of Jesse. We read it earlier at the start of the service of a a prophecy of a branch, Netzer, thus Netzerat, Nazareth, a branch from the root of Jesse, the Messiah, whom they believed was going to come from among them because they were 
the family of Jesse. And they were kind of aloof a little bit with that thinking, and maybe some of the people uh, around them kind of wondered, yeah, Messiah is going to come from them. And yet, of course, we find out they were right. Well, in that town, there was a young man by the name of Joseph, probably 20, possibly up to 25 years old. He was a tecton. Uh, we often say carpenter because that's, that's the way we think in today's terms about a builder. But uh, there were a lot of trees to be u- utilized for carpentry. And so he probably worked a whole lot more with stones. He was probably much more a stonemason. So this young man, Joseph, 20 to 25 years old, asked his parents about marrying a young girl in the village named Mary. She was probably 13 to 16 years old. Likely, they gave quick approval because she was from the same ancestral line. Joseph's father then got together with Mary's father to negotiate the bride price. Once approved, the young couple tasted a cup of wine together. Actually, Joseph would have offered it to Mary, and that was his marriage proposal. And if she drank it, which we know she must have, then they were considered married. The the parents would utter a form of blessing over them, and then they were legally betrothed. Now, betrothal is much more than our engagement. It was a a legal thing. They were actually legally married at this point. Only divorce uh, could separate them. But there was the second part of the, the marriage, which was the wedding ceremony, and that only came after their home was completed. And so Joseph would have immediately gone back to his father's house and built a home on his father's house, on his, on the fa- in the family compound. Once he was finished, usually about a year or so, he could retrieve his bride then for the formal ceremony, and then they would start living together as husband and wife. But in the meantime, an angel appeared to Mary. I kind of wonder if she looked like one of these young women uh, from Nazareth. This was taken in the late 1800s in Nazareth. It's interesting that Mary's reaction wasn't so much that she was stunned by the angel's appearance. Of course, angels had appeared a lot in the Old Testament. Maybe in her naivete, she just thought that happened every day. But what she was stunned by was what the angel said next, which was unknown to the people of Israel. You see, God had many times opened the wombs of barren women. In fact, Elizabeth Uh, The previous story is another example of that, but never a virgin birth. And Mary agreed to it in simple trust, wondering that God would would bring the long-awaited Messiah through her, using her. And she gave expression to her wonder in song, as we used in the prayer a few moments ago, capturing many of the biblical themes of God's faithfulness to Israel. But I wonder... Did the words stick in her throat when she sang, He has brought down rulers from their thrones? Did she wonder if that might even refer to King Herod, the Edomite? But now Joseph had a predicament. Mary's pregnant, which left him with three basic options. First, he could marry her quickly and hope the rumor mills die down. 
But of course, then he would be suspected as being an over-eager groom. Second, he could publicly divorce her as an adulteress, which meant that she probably would be stoned or at the very least ostracized from the community. Or he could have the marriage contract set aside quietly while she headed for an out-of-town birth. In his righteousness, we're told he was a righteous man, a tzaddik, that's a, <clears throat> that's a title in, in the first century, which uh, his righteousness would have, been, would have uh, been brought down if he had kind of admitted he was an overeager groom because of his righteousness, but also because of his love for Mary and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He was planning to go with option three. Then an angel came and verified Mary's story and told him to take option one, and they were quickly married. Now at this point, did they give Herod much thought? They lived up in Galilee. Herod was a long distance from them. Did they ponder the meaning of Messiah being born in Herod's backyard? Jewish readers would have, because both Luke and Matthew set this birth in the time of Herod. But soon, I think Mary and Joseph would have been alerted to it as well, as a Roman census called them to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a, a town of Ruth and Boaz, as well as King David, all of whom were Mary and Joseph's ancestors. It was a small town like Nazareth, but only six miles from Jerusalem in the Judean hills, and more importantly for our, uh, our cause, in the direct shadow, a little over a mile northwest, of Herod's great fortress home, the Herodian, which literally every morning as uh, Bethlehem- Bethlehemites got up, they found themselves under the shadow of Herod, quite literally. Now, Mary wouldn't have likely had to go along to the census, but it gave Mary and Joseph an opportunity to get together for the birth and, and perhaps to skip town and avoid all the rumors as well. But more importantly, it was God's way of bringing them to the birthplace of Messiah, Bethlehem, according to Micah 5, verse 2. As they made their way, some 80 to 90 miles South, from Nazareth and by the Sea of Galilee down to the Judean hills and to, through, by way of Jerusalem to Bethlehem. As they made their way, the Herodian would have actually uh, appeared before anything else, including the town of Bethlehem. Maybe they even passed some of Herod's soldiers along the way. Perhaps arriving late in the day, they found no lodging available. Sleeping under the stars was not an option for Mary's condition. So instead, they settled in a sheep cave. Now this reminds us of how much we have sanitized Christmas. Rather than our quaint and comfortable manger scenes, the reality of Jesus' birth was that he was born in a, in a cave within a small rock-walled sheepfold, if it was a cave out in the midst of the fields, used by dozens of shepherds, hundreds of shepherds, 
or possibly a cave that was underneath the house that was used for that particular person's small cattle, which were the sheep and goats. Whatever one it was, the the rock would be, or the floor would be covered with the manure, the walls and ceilings with cobwebs and perhaps stains from shepherd's fires. The stench would have been overwhelming. The manger itself was a cold stone, hollowed out for feeding the animals. Mary likely delivered the child herself, wrapped him in cloth strips, as was the peasant custom, and laid him in this manger. Some shepherds, who else to show up at a sheep cave, showed up telling the story of the angel's song and announcement. And and even as Mary and Joseph wondered with, with joy about this child, did they also question how in the shadow of the magnificent palace of Herod, God's son could be born in a stinking cave? Soon, probably the next day, they moved into a house. This is where the Magi would find them later, according to Matthew 2. The news of this birth must have spread like wildfire. We know the shepherds uh, contributed as they left the the scene, glorifying and praising God, telling anyone who would listen. Then on the eighth day, according to the Torah, they went to the local synagogue for Jesus' circumcision. And this was also the day they would have given him the name Jesus, a name that was given to them by God through the angel, a name which meant Savior, for he would save his people from their sins. Did they wonder, did that mean that he would save them from Herod too? Well, it wasn't long before they were on the road again. On the 40th day, they traveled six miles up to Jerusalem to the temple for Mary's ritual purification according to Leviticus 12. There she would wash in a mikvah ritual bath. Then she went into the court of the women, the rather large court in the temple, with an offering. And since they were poor, it was probably the poor person's offering of uh, two doves or pigeons rather than a lamb. They also presented Jesus to God, which was required of all firstborn sons in Israel, then redeeming him back with five silver shekels. While in the court of the women, Simeon, an old priest waiting for the coming of Messiah, made his way to the young couple urged by the Holy Spirit. He immediately recognized him as the Messiah, blessed God, blessed them. And then Anna, an old prophetess, came over with the very same confirmation. Must have given them pause. A priest and a prophet, right in the temple courts, confirming who Jesus was. And undoubtedly, they wondered again what God was doing through them. A priest and a prophet. Who's missing? Who's missing from that trio of anointed offices? Prophet, priest, and king. Where's the king? Well, he's across the city of Jerusalem in his palace. And he's a king who would never bow the knee. 
Sometime after, the Magi appeared. Now confirmation comes from the Gentile nations and from nature in the form of the star. But another angel's visit warned them of Herod's murderous intentions. He would not stand for another king to take his throne. So in the middle of the night, Mary and Joseph head south to Egypt, some 200 miles away, perhaps glancing to their left for a few miles, shuddering in the shadow of the Herodian, glad when they could put Herod in the rearview mirror. And all along, Mary and Joseph were told Mary keeps pondering and wondering. I'm thinking about that Mary must have been wondering or pondering about some questions like, how can this be? How can this be? A virgin birth? God using me? God using us? Especially with with Herod, the, the son of Esau, as king? And this Christmas brings about similar questions for us. Things that we need to wrestle with. Especially with the Herods of our world. Who or whatever they may be. Questions like, does God still work miracles? Does God still work miracles? Like a virgin birth? Can he work a miracle? In my life. Can God still use me? Like he used young Mary, young Joseph. Is God still in control? Is Christ still Lord in this evil world? In this world of chaos? And no day is more chaotic than this past year for us. And will I allow myself to be used by God in a world increasingly hostile to the one who wants to take the throne of everyone's life? That was Herod's problem, right? He didn't want anyone to take his throne. Will I give this baby the throne of my life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your coming on Christmas. We praise you for all that you have done for us, all that you mean to us, not the least of which is a promise that our sins are forgiven so that we can be children of God in relationship with God through you. But Lord, we have to confront these same questions. Will we be used by you? Will we give you control over our lives rather than seek to hoard that control for ourselves? As we wrestle with these questions, help us to do so with joy at the birth of your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's respond by singing together once in Royal David's city. We're going to sing the first four stanzas. And then after the benediction, we're going to sing stanza five as our doxology. So would you stand with me as we sing, Once in Royal David City. Mm-hmm.